Okay guys, welcome back to part two of the Barbie and Ken Killers. So, we're now we're going to go back with Kitchen, Kristen French. Okay. During the after school hours of April 16th, 1992, Bernardo and Homoka drove through St. Catharines to look for potential victims. Although students were still going home, the streets were generally empty. As they passed Holy Cross Secondary School, a Catholic school in the city's north end, they spotted 15-year-old Kristen French walking briskly to her nearby home. They pulled into the parking lot of nearby Grace Lutheran Church and Homoka got out of the car, map in hand, pretending to need assistance. When French looked at the map, Bernardo attacked from behind, brandishing a knife and forcing her into the front seat of the car. From the back seat, Homoka subdued French by pulling her hair. French took the same route home every day taking about 15 minutes to get home and care for her dog. Soon after she would have arrived, her parents became convinced that she met with foul play and notified police. Within 24 hours, the Niagara Regional Police Service assembled a team, searched French's route, and found several witnesses who had seen the abduction from different locations. French's shoe, recovered from the parking lot, underscored the seriousness of the abduction. Now, a lot of people say that Kristen left her shoe intentionally. Some say that it was an accident and they just pulled her and that was that. But I mean... Kristen seemed like a very smart girl. I mean, personally, I think she did leave a clue for the police or whoever. I mean, like, when you guys walk around the street, do you not, like, or, like, drive? And, like, you see a piece of article on the floor and you're, you question, what is this doing here? Or is that just me? Because, like, I don't know. It's just, I feel like French was a smart girl and that she left a clue for police to find. <clears throat> Over the Easter weekend, Bernardo and Hermoka videotaped themselves torturing, raping, and sodomizing French, forcing her to drink large amounts of alcohol and submit to Bernardo. Ooh. I can't drink alcohol. <laughs> I I had a wild streak as a teenager, and I mean, drinking alcohol now, it, I can't. It just kind of, I think I'd die. <laughs> Honestly, like, I wouldn't be able to drink that much alcohol. Like, I can have a few drinks here and there, but my I, like my teenagers, I just drank way too much. And 
I guess that's just it. I can't drink that much alcohol. At his trial, Crown Prosecutor Ray Hulalan said that Bernardo always intended to kill her because she was never blindfolded and could identify her captors. The following day, Bernardo and Homoka murdered French before going to the Homokas for Easter dinner. Homoka testified at her trial that Bernardo strangled French for seven minutes while she watched. Bernardo said that Homoka beat French with a rubber mallet because she tried to escape and French was strangled with a noose around her neck which was secured to a hope chest. Homoka then went to fix her hair. This psychopath. French's nude body was found on April 30th, 1992 in a ditch in Burlington about 45 minutes away from St. Catharines and a short distance from the cemetery where Mahaffey is buried. Wow, that's fucked. She had been washed and her hair was cut off. Oh no. Although she was Although it was thought that French's hair was removed as a trophy, Homoka testified that it was cut to impede identification. That's so sad. Apparently, um, French had beautiful, long brown hair. And it's just sad that they, these gr- girls went through this. I that's really sad. Shortly after Tammy Hamoka's funeral, her parents left town and Lori visited her grandparents in Mississauga, leaving the house empty. According to author Stephen Williams, during the weekend of January 12, 1991, Bernardo abducted a girl took her to the house, raped her while Homoka watched and dropped her off on a desert road near Lake Gibson. Bernardo and Homoka called her January Girl. About 5.30 a.m. on April 6, 1991, Bernardo abducted a 14-year-old who's warming up as coxswain for a local rowing team. The girl was distracted by a blonde woman who waved at her from her car, enabling Bernardo to drag her into the shrubbery near the rowing club. He sexually assaulted her and forced her to move her clothes and waited five minutes, during which he disappeared. Derek Finkel's 1997 book of No Claim to Mercy presented evidence trying Bernardo to the murder of Elizabeth Bain, who disappeared on June 19, 1990, three weeks after the last known attack on the, of the Scarpa rapist. Bain told her mother that she was going to check the tennis schedule at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Three days later, her car was found with a large bloodstain on the back seat. Robert Baltkovich, who had consistently maintained his innocence, was convicted of second-degree murder in the death of his girlfriend, 
on March 31st, 1992. At trial, his lawyer suggested that the then unidentified Scarborough rapist was responsible for the crime. Baltovich served eight years of a life sentence before he was released pending appeal. In September 2004, his appeal was processed with the lawyers alleging that he had been wrongfully convicted and Bernardo was guilty of the murder. The Court of Appeal for Ontario set aside both of his conviction on December 2nd, 2004, but on July 15th, 2005, the Attorney of General of Ontario announced that he would face a new trial. On April 22nd, 2008, after a series of pre-trial motions, including the presentation of evidence implicating Bernardo in Bain's murder, Crown Prosecutor Philip Coltonen told the court that he would call no evidence and ask the jury to find Baltovich not guilty of second-degree murder. On March 29, 1992, Bernardo stalked and videotaped two sisters from his car and followed them to his parents' house. The sisters incorrectly recorded his license plate number. One sister reported the incident to the NRP on March 31, 1992 and received an incident number to report further information. With French under Homoko's guard on April 18, 1992, Bernardo went out to buy dinner and rent a movie. He was spotted by one of the sisters, who attempted to track him to his house. Although she lost him, she got a better description of his license plate and car and reported them to police. Her information was mishandled by police. Falling into the black hole to which Judge Archie Campbell referred to the Campbell Report of 1996, an inquiry into police mishandling of evidence in the case. In 2006, Bernardo confessed to at least 10 more mm. sexual assaults dating to March 1986, mm. including 1987. Also, a 15 year old girl, another man. Anthony Henmeyer had been convicted of the assault and served a full sentence of it on June 25, 2008. The Court of Appeal for Ontario overturned the conviction and exonerated him. Homoka and Bernardo were questioned by police several times in connection with the Scarborough rapist investigation. Tammy Homoka's death and Bernardo's stalking of other women before the death of French. The officer filed a report and on May 12, 1992, an NRP sergeant and constable briefly interviewed Bernardo. The officers decided that he was an unlikely suspect Although Bernardo admitted that he had been questioned in connection with the Scarpa rapists, three days later, the Green Ribbon Task Force was created to investigate the murders of Mahaffey and French. Bernardo and Homoka had applied to their names legally, changed to Teal. 
which Bernardo had taken from the serial killer in 1988 film Criminal Law. At the end of May, John Motil, Motile, an acquaintance of Simonis and Bernardo, reported Bernardo as a possible murder suspect. Oh shit. In December 1992, the Center of Forensic Scientists finally began testing DNA samples provided by Bernardo two years earlier. On December 27th, he severely beat Homoka on the limbs, head, and face with a flashlight, claiming that she had been in an automobile accident. The severely bruised Homoka returned to work on January 4th, 1993. Her skeptical co-workers called her parents, and although they rescued her the following day by physically removing her from the house, Homoka went back in, frantically searching for something. Her parents took her to St. Catherine's General Hospital, where she gave a statement to the NRP that she was a battered spouse and filed charges against Bernardo. He was arrested and later released on his own recognizance. A friend who found Bernardo's suicide note intervened and Hamoka moved in with relatives in Brampton. 26 months after Bernardo submitted a DNA sample, Toronto police were informed that it finally matched that of the Scarborough rapist and immediately placed him under 24-hour surveillance. Metro Toronto Sexual Assault Squad investigators interviewed Homoka on February 9, 1993. Despite hearing their suspicions about Bernardo, Mocha focused on his abuse of her. Later that night, she told her aunt and uncle that Bernardo was the Scarborough rapist, that she and Bernardo were involved in the rape and murder of Mahaffey and French, and the tapes were recorded on videotape. The NRP reopened its investigation of Tammy Hamoka's death. Two days later, Hamoka met with Niagara Falls lawyer George Walker, who sought legal immunity from Hulin in exchange for her cooperation. She was also placed under 24-hour surveillance. The couple's name change was approved on February 13, 1993. The next day, Walker met with Crown Criminal Law Office Director Murray Siegel. After Walker told Siegel about the videotapes of the rapes, Siegel advised him that due to Homoka's involvement in the crimes, full immunity was not a possibility. On February 17th, Metro Sexual Assault Squad and Green Ribbon Task Force detectives arrested Bernardo on several charges and obtained a search warrant. Because his link to the murders was weak, the warrant was limited. No evidence, sorry, no evidence, which was not accepted and documented in the warrant, could be removed from the premises. And all videotapes found by police had to be viewed in the house. Damage had to be kept to a minimum. Police could not tear down walls looking for the videotapes. 
The search of the house included updated warrants, lasted 71 days. And the only tape found by police had a brief segment of Homoka performing oral sex on Jane Doe. On May 5th, Walker was informed that the government was offering Homoka a plea bargain of 12 years, which she had one week to accept. If she declined, the government would change would charge her with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, and other crimes. Walker accepted the offer, and Homoka later agreed to it. On May 14th, Homoka's plea bargain was finalized, and she began giving statements to police investigators. She told police that Bernardo boosted that he had raped as many as 30 women twice as many as the police suspected, calling him the happy rapist. Citing the need to protect Bernardo's right to a fair trial, a publicity ban was imposed on Homoka's preliminary hearing. The Crown had applied for the ban, which was imposed on July 5th by Francis Covas of the Ontario Court of Justice, General Division. Homoka, through her lawyers, supported the ban. Bernardo's law lawyers agreed. Sorry, his lawyers argued that he would be prejudiced by the ban since Homoka had been portrayed as his victim. Four media outlets and one author also opposed the ban. Some lawyers argued that rumors could damage the future trial process more than the, publish, the publication of evidence. In February 1994, Homoka and Homoka divorced Bernardo. Public access to the internet effectively nulled the court's order, as did proximity to the American border. Since the ban was only in effect in Ontario, U.S. journalists not subject to the publication ban published details of Homoka's testimony, which were distributed by electronic band breakers. Newspapers in Buffalo, Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York City, and the United Kingdom, as well as radio and television stations along the Canadian-U.S. border, reported details gleaned from Homoka's trial. The Cincinnati series, A Current Affair, are two programs of the crimes. Canadians brought copies of the Buffalo News across the border, prompting orders to the NRP to arrest all those with more than one copy at the border. Extra copies were confiscated. Copies of other newspapers, including the New York Times, were turned back at the border or not accepted by distributors in Ontario. Gordon Dom, a retired police officer who defied the publication ban by distributing details from foreign media, was convicted of two counts of concept of court. You're a police officer. Don't you think you know this shit? Bernardo was tried for the murders of French and Mahaffey in 1995, and his trial included detailed testimony from Homoka and videotapes of the rapes. 
Bernardo testified that the deaths were accidental, later claiming that his wife, Carla, was the actual killer. On September 1st, 1995, Bernardo was convicted of a number of offenses, including the first two-degree murders and two aggravated sexual assaults, and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for at least 25 years. He was designated a dangerous offender, making him unlikely to ever be released. In a plea bargain, a 12-year sentence for manslaughter, Homoka testified against Bernardo in his murder trial. The plea bargain was criticized by many Canadians. Since Bernardo's first defense lawyer withheld videotapes for 17 months, they were considered crucial evidence, and prosecutors said that they would have never have agreed to the plea bargain if they had seen the tapes. Murray was later acquitted of obstruction of justice and faced a disciplinary hearing by the Law Society of Upper Canada. Although Bernardo was kept in the segregation unit at Kingston Penitentiary for his own safety, he was attacked and harassed. He was punched in the face by another inmate when he returned from a shower in 1996. In June 1999, five convicts tried to storm his segregation range and a riot squad used gas to disperse them. I'm sorry, but I mean, if Paul was being attacked in jail, I wouldn't help him. I wouldn't help him at all. Sorry, dude. The Toronto Star reported on February 21st, 2006, that Bernardo admitted sexually assaulting at least 10 other women in attacks not previously attributed to him. Most were in 1986, a year before what police called the reign of terror by the Scarborough rapist. Authorities suspected Bernardo in other crimes, including a string rapes in Amherst, New York, and the drowning of Terry Anderson in St. Catharines, but he has never acknowledged his involvement. Bernardo's lawyer, Anthony G. Bryant, reportedly forwarded the information to legal authorities in November 2005. In 2006, Bernardo gave a prison interview suggesting that he had reformed and could make a good parole candidate. He he became eligible to petition a jury to be allowed to apply for early parole in 2008 under the Faint Hope Clause, since he committed multiple murders before the 1997 Criminal Code Amendment, but did not do so. In 2015, Bernardo became eligible and applied for Day Pro in Toronto. According to the victim's lawyer, Tim Danson, it is unlikely that Bernardo will ever be released from prison because of his dangerous offender status. In, two, in September of 2013, he was moved from Kingston Penitentiary, which was closing, to Millhaven Institution in Bath, Ontario, where he is reportedly segregated from the other inmates. Bernardo scored a 35 out of 40 on the psychopathy checklist, 
a psychological assessment tool used to assess the presence of a psychopath in individuals. I mean, this is classified as clinical psychopathy. In November 2015, Bernardo self-published A Mad World Order, a violent fictional 631-page ebook on Amazon. Wow, you must have no time in jail. But November 15th, the book was reportedly an Amazon bestseller, but was removed from the website due to a public outcry. In October 2018, Bernardo had been set to go for trial for possession of a shank weapon while incarcerated, a 5 centimeter long screw attached to a pen. However, the prosecution dropped the charges due to the determination that there was no reasonable probability of conviction. Bernardo became eligible for parole in 2018. On October 17, 2018, he was denied date and full parole by the Parole Board of Canada. I mean, I wouldn't want him out on the streets either. That's just fucked. Like, fucked, fucked. Okay. Jamie Cameron, professor of law in Osgood Hall, noted that at the time of Homoka trial, three features of the case worried and concerned the public. Little was known about the respective roles Homoka and Bernardo played in their actions and the killing of their victims. By spring of 93, it was clear that the Crown's case against Bernardo depended on Homoka's evidence. In simple terms... To secure a conviction against him, her story had to be believed. Yet, on or no view of the facts that then known could be exculpated. By casting her as a victim of his predatory behavior, her responsibility for the crimes that were committed could be dismissed and her credibility as a witness preserved. So, on May 18, 1993, Homoka was arranged on two counts of manslaughter. Bernardo was charged with two counts of each kidnapping, unlawful confinement, aggravated assault, sexual assault, and first-degree murder, as well as one of dismemberment. Coincidentally, that day, Bernardo's original lawyer, Ken Murray, first watched the rape videos. Murray decided to hold onto the tapes and use them to impreach Homoka on the stand during Bernardo's trial. Neither Murray nor Carolyn McDonald, the other lawyer on the defense team, were deeply experienced in criminal law, and it was only over time that their ethical dilemma showed itself. Also to be a potentially criminal matter, for they were withholding evidence 
By October 1993, he and his law partners had studied over 4,000 documents from the Crown. Murray has said he was willing to hand over the tapes to the Crown if they had let him cross-examine Homoka in the anticipated preliminary hearing. The hearing was never held. Homoka was tried on, on June 28, 1993. Through the publication ban, the court had imposed limited the details released to the public who were barred from the proceedings. Murray said the videotapes showed Homoka sexually assaulting four female victims, having sex with a female prostitute in Atlantic City, and at another point, drugging an unconscious victim. In February 1994, like I said, they divorced. During that summer of 1994, Murray had become concerned about serious ethical problems that had arisen in connection with the tapes, and he continued representing of Bernardo. He consulted his own lawyer, Austin Cooper, who asked the Law Society of Upper Canada's Provincial Conduct Committee for advice. The Law Society directed Murray in writing to seal the tapes in a package and turn them over to the judge presiding at Bernardo's trial. The Law Society further directed him to remove himself as Bernardo's counsel and to tell Bernardo what he had been instructed to do. Murray said in a statement releasing through Cooper in September of 1995. This is fucked. On September 12, 1994, Cooper attended Bernardo's trial and advised Justice Patrick Lee Sage of the Ontario Courts General Division lawyer, John Rosen, replaced Murray as Bernardo's defense counsel and the prosecutors about what the law society had directed Murray to do. Rosen argued that the tape should have been turned over to the defense first. Murray handed the tapes along with a detailed summary to Rosen who kept the tapes for about two weeks and then decided to hand them over. The revelation that a key piece of evidence had been kept from police for so long created a furor, especially with the police. The public realized that Homoka had actually been Bernardo's willing accomplice. The tapes were not allowed to be shown to the spectators. Only the audio portion was available to them. Moreover, Bernardo has always claimed that while he raped and tortured Leslie and Kristen, Homoka actually killed them. After the videotapes had been found, rumors spread that Homoka was an active participant of the crimes. The public grew incensed as the full extent of Homoka's role in the case was finally exposed and the plea agreement now seemed unnecessary. However, as provided in the plea bargain, Homoka had already disclosed significant information to the police and crown found no grounds to break the agreement and open the case.
After her 1995 testimony against Bernardo, when Homoka returned to Kristen, uh, sorry, Kingston's prison for women, her mother Dorothy Homoka started to suffer annual breakdowns between Thanksgiving and Christmas. The collapses were severe enough that she was hospitalized, sometimes for months at a time. While at Kingston, Homoka began corresponding courses in sociology through nearby Queen's University, which initially caused a media storm. Homoka was required to pay all fees, as well as her personal needs, from her fortnightly income of about $69. Although she told author Stephen Williams in a subsequent letter, I should get some financial assistance. Great. Homoka later graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychologically psychologically from psychology geez I cannot talk psychology in Queens from Queens news of Homoka's educational efforts were greater in the media and disdain nothing has changed concepts of remorse repentance shame responsibility and atonement have no place in the universe of Carla perhaps she simply lacks the moral gene wrote Globe columnist Mark Margaret went. Homoka was moved from Kingston in the summer of 1997 to Joliet Institution, a medium security prison in Joliet, Quebec, 80 kilometers northeast of Montreal, a facility called Club Fed by its critics. In 1999, Toronto Star reporter Michelle Shepard came into possession of copies of her application to transfer to the Mission Caesar Cascrian, run by the Elizabeth Fry Society, and published the story noting the halfway house's proximity to local schools hours before the Canadian course issued a publicity ban on the information. Homoka sued the government after her transfer to a Montreal halfway house was denied. In Juliet, Homoka had a sexual affair with Linda Renoyou, a transgender man who was serving time for a series of armed robberies who reoffended so that he could be sent to back to Juliet to be with Homoka, according to the Montreal Gazette. Her letters to Veronu wrote Christy Blatchford in her column in the Globe and Mail were in French and on the same sort of childish puppy dog decorated paper she once wrote to her former husband. The same kind of girlish love note she sent to him. Her language, Blatchfort noted, was equally juvenile. Homoko gave him the incentive to finish his schooling. Vranu said, Vranu, who identified as a man, and was scheduled to undergo gender reassessment surgery, said Homoka liked to be tied up, something that disturbed Ranu, who was serving a sentence for robbery. He said one game seemed to simulate rape, the Post reported. This article, along with numerous others, whipped up public opinion in the date of Homoka's release. In 2001, Homoka was transferred to the Stian de Plains Institution, a maximum security prison in Quebec.
The Toronto Sun reported, while there, Homoka began a sexual relationship with Jean-Paul Gribet, a convicted murderer being held in men's unit of the facility. A rumor that Homoka intended to settle in Alberta caused an uproar in that province. McLean's weighed in with a series of possible scenarios. The most educated speculation was Homoka staying in Quebec, where language and cultural differences supposedly muted the media coverage of her case, and where she'll be less recognizable. Another rumor suggests she will flee overseas, restarting in a country where her case is unknown, or sneak into the United States, using an illegal identity to cross the border, and living out her life under a facade. A two-day hearing was held before Judge Jean R. Bellieu in 2005. He ruled that Hamoka, upon her release on July 4, 2005, would still pose a risk to the public at large. As a result, using Section 810.2 of the Criminal Code, certain restrictions were placed on Hamoka as a condition of her release. These are the nine conditions. One, she ha- she was to tell police her home address, work address, and with whom she lives. Two, she was required to notify police as soon as any of them changed. Three, she was likewise required to notify police of any change to her name. Four, if she planned to be away from her home for more than 48 hours, she had to give 72 hours notice. Five, she could not contact Paul Bernardo's, the family of Leslie and Kristen, or that of the woman known as Jane Doe, or any violent criminals. There goes her jail fucking lover. She was forbidden to be with people under the age of 16. She was forbidden from consuming drugs other than prescription medicine. She was required to continue therapy and counseling. She was required to provide police with a DNA sample. And that's basically her little, the Paul and Carla story, the Barbie and Ken killers. Hope you guys enjoyed.